Welcome to this episode of Shotguns and Sugar, where we take a look at the history you don't always learn about in school. I'm Charles McCloskey, and in this episode, one of a series on the American Civil War on the world stage, I'm going to discuss the Civil War's impact on modern warfare. Like my other podcasts on this topic, this one is based on lectures I've put together for college classes I've taught in both the United States and world history. A more comprehensive list of sources on this subject is available, along with a complete reference list for this podcast on the Shotguns and Sugar website, shotgunsandsugar.com. Those of you who listen to my podcast on slavery and economic issues related to the Civil War know the history of Lieutenant Hubert Dilger, who, as a German-trained artillery officer, received the Congressional Medal of Honor defending retreating Union forces at Chancellorsville. Well, Dilger was not the only foreigner fighting for the Union at that particular battle. Shortly after completing his medical examinations in London, Charles Wyndham sailed to New York and, with the help of P.T. Barnum, who he met in a hotel lobby in Washington, D.C., joined the Union Army as a brigade surgeon. In that capacity, he served at the battles of Chancellorsville, Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, and throughout the Red River Campaign. Although he was trained as a surgeon, his true interest was in dramatics. After returning to England in 1865, his acting skills became so popular that he was able to build his own theater. Opening its doors in 1899, London's Wyndham Theater has hosted hundreds, if not thousands, of stage performances over the last 120 years. So, I hope you are wondering what Wyndham's experience in the Civil War has to do with the world's interest in the new technologies and strategies that came out of the Civil War. The war brought significant advancements in military equipment. These new technologies and the tactical advancements they permitted gave the Civil War the moniker of being the world's first modern war. Anyone who has read about great naval battles of the Civil War know that the classic battle between the Monitor and the Merrimack at Hampton Roads on March 9, 1862. Although a draw, the battle demonstrated the value of ironclad vessels in the conduct of naval warfare. What most people don't know was the key role ironclads played in the Western, or Trans-Mississippi, theater of the Civil War. In April of 1861, just weeks after Confederate guns opened fire on Fort Sumter, James Buchanan Eads was awarded a contract to build ironclads to be used on the inland waterways. Eads made his first delivery towards the end of the year, and in February of 1862, several of Eads' armored gunboats, nicknamed Turtles by Grant's Army, attacked Fort Henry on the Tennessee River, and a few days later contributed to the Confederate surrender at Fort Donaldson. These were the first two Union victories of the Civil War. River ironclads also played a prominent role in the Battle of Vicksburg, the victory that gave total control of the Mississippi River to the Union. Eads also designed a rotating steam-driven gun turret that became a model for the guns on modern battleships. Eads was not the only company, of course, producing ironclads. For example, John Erickson's company designed and built the more famous Monitor. The breech-loading rifle has been around for years. Indeed, Henry VIII was reported to have used a breech-loading shotgun in 1537. However, improved manufacturing techniques expanded their use considerably during the Civil War. In the 1830s and 40s, several men worked to expand on the benefits of the breech-loading rifle by designing them to fire several rounds before they needed to be reloaded, creating the repeating rifle as opposed to the single-shot gun. 
1833, Samuel Colt patented a pistol with a rotating chamber holding five bullets. His design was based on the system used to control a ship's steering wheel. The Colt pistols were first used during the battles of the Mexican-American War, but the company struggled financially until the outbreak of the Civil War. In 1848, Horace Smith and Daniel B. Wesson opened the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company to produce their level-action repeating pistols. Although their manufacturing company closed in late 1857, in 1860 their plant superintendent, Benjamin Tyler Henry, reopened the plant for his New Haven Arms Company and began selling a redesigned version of Smith & Wesson's pistols as the Henry Repeating Rifle. During the Civil War, some 8,000 Henry rifles were used by Union troops. In 1866, Smith & Wesson, in cooperation with their partner, Oliver Winchester, organized their company anew, and the name Winchester became synonymous with Western expansion. During the early years of the Civil War, Richard Jordan Gatling, an inventor and a trained physician working out of Indianapolis, Indiana, was shocked at the suffering and privations of Union troops. Recognizing that most military deaths of the day were the result of exposure and disease rather than bullets and bayonets, he reasoned that if each warrior was stronger, fewer would be needed to fight. Therefore, there would be fewer deaths from the war. So, in his mind, the way to reduce deaths was to produce weaponry powerful enough for one soldier to equal the military strength of ten. The result of his imagination was the first rapidly repeating weapon, the Gatling gun forerunner of the World War I machine gun, and the more modern Browning automatic rifle, a machine gun small enough to be wielded by a single soldier, and even the much maligned AK-47. Although neither the Confederate nor Union armies formally contracted with Gatling for use of his gun, several Union commanders acquired a dozen or so of the weapons using their own money or with donations from friends and relatives. They were found on gunboats and at the Battle of Petersburg. One often overlooked technological advancement that the Civil War generals took advantage of was the use of canned goods. While the Civil War food was horrible and troops on both sides were terribly undernourished, the use of canned goods simplified getting what food there was to the front lines. The use of canned rations, along with other technologies, foreshadowed their use in future wars worldwide like the Boxer Rebellion, the Boer War, the Spanish-American War, and World War I. But the real advancement fell into the military genius of the commanding generals to update strategies and tactics to effectively apply these tools against their enemy. Another innovation that is frequently ignored is the development of ambulances. Union Surgeon General Dr. William A. Hammond convinced the generals to allocate one ambulance for every 150 soldiers. His success in helping to save lives was evident after the Battle of Antietam. The Union Ambulance Service was able to remove all 9,000-plus injured troops by the end of the day, an impressive accomplishment for the era. However, Hammond's contribution to medicine went well beyond the practical. He ordered the creation of a medical museum to accompany the newly established Army Medical Library. This museum was used to house research related to yellow fever and cholera epidemics, among other artifacts. This work contributed significantly to the development of effective vaccinations and treatments of these diseases that had brought more than one army to its knees. 
The Battle of Petersburg itself is representative of the battle tactics first used in the Civil War that were carried on into future wars. The battle took place in June of 1864. It started when Grant ordered his army to attack entrenched Confederates under the command of General P.T. Beauregard at a small town just a few miles south of Richmond, Virginia, named, appropriately, Petersburg. Knowing that the fall of Petersburg would mean the fall of the Confederate capital and the end of the Confederacy, Beauregard's troops held off the Union attack until reinforcements arrived, forcing Grant to engage in a ten-month-long siege. Foreshadowing the trenches dividing French and German armies along the Maginot Line during World War I, the siege of Petersburg saw the introduction of trench warfare as a tactical innovation necessitated by the power of new military technologies. A key element in both the use of these weapons and the tactics that grew from them had to do with intangibles, important attitudes that, while they had little to do with the hardware used to fight, had a tremendous effect on strategies and practices that took place both on and off the field of battle. One strategy focusing on intangibles instead of bullets and bayonets was the use of politics as a weapon. For example, many in Britain viewed the Emancipation Proclamation as a political move intended to destroy the Southern aristocratic society. And when you destroy a society, you remove its will to continue to fight. I discuss this topic in greater detail in the podcast on slavery and the economy. Another intangible involved recognizing the impact of northern and southern cultures on the war. For example, although the North imposed a draft as early as March of 1863, some in Europe considered the volunteer northern army as more of a mob than an army when compared to the South, whom they felt was much more disciplined and much, much better managed. Many in Britain used these positions as part of the debate on nationalism that I discuss in yet another broadcast in this series of the Civil War on the World Stage. They argued that the lack of a monarch to resolve sectional disputes of the type prevented democracies from providing a truly stable government. In fact, Napoleon III's efforts to create an empire in Mexico with Maximilian as the monarch as part of his grand design, reflects this position. I will discuss this story in more detail in another episode. Others viewed democracy much more positively. To some, it was the fundamental glue, the moral strength that tied the political to the military and provided the North with the source of persistence that it needed to defeat the South. In fact, Edwin Lawrence Godkin, A British observer argued that these types of intangible strengths translated to the North's eventual success on the battlefield when he wrote, They may be routed and disorganized and lose their officers, but as neither the organization nor the officers were ever of much consequence to them, they rally at the first wood they reached and return to the charge without the slightest suspicion that anything fatally disastrous has occurred such disasters as befell Grant at Shiloh or McClellan on the first of the seven days before Richmond, or Rosencrantz at Murfreesboro would, to a regular European army, have been fatal." In the 1890s, the importance of these intangibles led George Francis Robert Henderson, another British observer, to speculate that in order to win the next European war, Britain would need a much larger army composed largely of non-professional soldiers, like those who fought in the American Civil War. 
and that training officers to handle these kinds of enlisted personnel would give an important edge to the British war machine. This concept became reality in 1899 when the British military was forced to use local constabulary units supervised by trained military officers during the South African Boer War. The commander-in-chief of the British Army, 1st Viscount Garnet Wolseley, saw to it that the American Civil War was the most often cited to illustrate official military doctrines. A third intangible is persistence. Northern persistence contributed directly to a strategy that today we call total war. During the Civil War, this strategy came to the fore in two very different ways. One involves extending the war beyond the battlefield into the home front. The best example of this strategy is Sherman's famous March to the Sea, an offensive that cut a swath of destruction from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia. Combined with his march from Tennessee to Atlanta, Sherman's offenses effectively broke the Southern fighting spirit. Although not unknown in the annals of European military strategies, this type of warfare flew in the face of standard 18th and 19th century European techniques that limited warfare to structured battles with opposing armies facing each other on a defined battlefield, like the famous Charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War. Though shocking to Southerners, Northerners, and Europeans, Sherman's methods simply sought to destroy the economic and social ability to wage war through the use of a scorched earth policy that destroyed everything in the army's path without directly attacking those who did not resist his efforts. Sherman's tactics foreshadowed much, much worse iterations of this method that included direct attacks on non-combatants. Hitler's use of the V2 during the Battle of Britain is an excellent example of what I'm talking about here. Of course, the Axis powers were not the only ones to utilize this strategy. Although the Allied forces in Europe, and later American forces in the Pacific, always sought to attack positions with militarily significant industries, the Allied bombing of Dresden and the American use of nuclear weapons against Japan were both intended to send the same message of hopelessness to the surviving non-combatants that Sherman's march to the sea intended, breaking the will of the country to continue to fight. The other expression of total war that was found in the Civil War came to be known as the strategy of winning at any cost, the willingness to sacrifice soldiers' lives to obtain a military objective. Those in England who studied why the Union defeated the South concluded this strategy was the primary reason they were victorious. The British Saturday Review reportedly stated that if the North loses three men to every one lost by the South, the North's going to win in the long run. Although it is normally left unsaid, one of the most obvious rules of war is that soldiers die. Indeed, victory may be defined by who's left standing at the end of the battle. But the death rate during the Civil War was significantly higher than other wars. The way the Civil War generals implemented this strategy resulted in a military bloodletting previously unknown in the annals of post-medieval European military history. Using old tactics against new weapons created casualties and death at Shiloh and Antietam never before known. In fact, Grant was slandered as a butcher of men for pressing these battles in spite of so many deaths. Others, on the other hand, viewed his actions as simply another version of the intangible attitude of total war. But let's not be too quick to only blame Grant's use of the win-at-any-cost strategy for the bloodbath of the battles of the Civil War. 
One need only to look at Pickett's disastrous charge up Cemetery Ridge at Gettysburg to realize that Grant was not alone in sacrificing men to obtain a military goal. In fact, Edward Ayers has suggested that Southern casualties were nearly as great proportionally as the casualties of World War I. Because military record-keeping was not a high priority, to say the least, during the Civil War, the actual number of those who died in the war will never be known. However, estimates place the dead on both sides at between 620 and 850,000. By comparison, only slightly more than 400,000 Americans died in World War II, some 58,000 in Vietnam, and a whopping 258 in the first Gulf War. This death rate was not lost on the European community. Before he was coroner at the university and dean of the new college in Oxford, England, Charles Mayo served as surgeon major and medical inspector of the 13th Corps of Grant's Army of the Tennessee and was active at the fall of Vicksburg. This Dr. Mayo, by the way, is no relation to the man who founded the Mayo Clinic. That one was named William and served as a draft board surgeon for the Union side during the Civil War. By the way, as Gatling pointed out, the high death rate had less to do with combat than other factors. Shelby Foote, another recognized expert on the Civil War, argued that twice as many soldiers died of disease during the war than combat. Several factors combined to create this situation. First, the food rations given to the soldiers was not particularly balanced or even necessarily safe. Soldiers' most common rations included hardtack, a mixture of flour, water, and salt that was then baked until almost all of the moisture was removed. Most soldiers soaked it in coffee or fried it in pork or bacon fat to make it palatable, but it really had relatively little food value. Herds of cattle were often driven along with the armies when they were on the march so soldiers could be fed fresh beef for their protein. During periods when that was not possible, they were provided with salt pork or salt beef. One set of researchers noted that the salt meat was made up of the poorest cuts of meat, animal organs, necks, and leg parts that were often more bone than meat, limiting their food value. The meat was provided raw, though heavily salted, to preserve it. The soldiers were expected to cook it themselves. There were no company kitchens or mess halls. And once issued, the soldiers often had to carry it in their backpacks for hours before cooking it. Remember, there was no refrigeration available. Frequently, these marches would take hours or even days, meaning that the raw meat sat in the soldiers' backpack until they stopped long enough to build a fire and cook it. Therefore, it was often spoiled before it was cooked, resulting in uncounted cases of food poisoning. Another source of non-combat deaths had to do with accepted medical procedures. Although first discovered in the 1500s by a Catholic monk, germ theory was not confirmed as a legitimate medical theory until Louis Pasteur published his findings in 1867. That's two years after the Civil War ended. Without an understanding of germs role in infection, the idea of sterilization was not considered an important factor in medical care. Indeed, the sanitation techniques used today did not come into common, though not universal, practice until the 19-teens. Similarly, it would be another 50 years before antibiotics came into common use. Because of these issues, often soldiers who had limbs amputated to save their lives later died of infections acquired from the doctor's use of dirty implements. 
The use of tangible and intangible strategies that incorporated new technologies had important social, political, economic, and cultural ramifications, not only for the Civil War combatants, but for Europe. Short-term, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation proved to be a vital tool in Northern efforts to win the hearts of Europe, and therefore contribute to the Southern defeat. Looking longer term, the introduction of new technologies played a vital role in European military developments decades after the Civil War was over. In addition to the effect of new technologies and strategies on warfare, slavery, war economics, theoretical debates on nationalism and ethnic unity, and Reconstruction were all substantial issues that caused the world, particularly Europeans, to maintain an ongoing interest in the American Civil War. Each of these are addressed in their own individual podcasts. Taken together, they had a substantial influence on the route other countries took in their relationship with the United States, thereby increasing the young nation's impact on the world stage. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this issue of Shotguns and Sugar, where we talk about elements of the past that you don't often hear about in the traditional classroom. For more information on this and other subjects addressed on this channel, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com, and tune into future broadcasts about the wonders of history.